Hello and welcome to Scott Rock, where your hosts from Climb Scotland, Robert McKenzie, and me, Cal McBain, catch up with climbers every two weeks who have different epic tales to tell us. We hope you enjoy the show. And remember, when you're out climbing, be safe and do your buddy checks. Do you smell that? That smells like a new climbing wall. Ooh, I do love the smell of fresh plywood in the morning. Oh yeah, welcome back to Scott Rock, and yes, indeed, there is another new climbing wall coming to Scotland, and one that has been greatly anticipated. Indeed, the ledge in Inverness, that mythical beast that we've all been longing to see open for years now, is finally here. Yes, it's looking like it's going to be open in a few weeks and here to tell us a little bit more, but more importantly, to confess his sins, we have the big boss man, Duncan McCallum. Duncan has always played a huge part in the climbing scene and the development of climbing in Scotland. From placing the first bolt in Scotland, uh aha, to opening the Edinburgh International Climbing Arena in Ratho. I'm going to say that every climber in Scotland has benefited in some way from Duncan's legacy and he aims to continue having that impact with the ledge. So please sit back, relax for a bit of a history lesson and a look into the future with Duncan McCallum. I was desperately in the house the other day trying to work out how I was going to word this first sentence so it wasn't. Insulting. No, you can <laughs> you can say what you like. So I think it's fair to say that a lot, most of the Scottish climbers from your generation know who you are. You've been part of the scene. You've been part of the community. Uh, people that work in this industry know your name. Yeah. They know what you've done. They know who you are. Yeah, like those guys all know you. But I think there's. A huge number of Scottish climbers, the kind of new generation that started in the last 10, 15 years, that have benefited greatly from what you've been involved in, but may not know your name or the full story of what happened. There's a lot of threads, isn't there? There's a lot of threads, threads. uh, and you've had your hand in some fairly large things that have impacted the Scottish climbing community in significant ways that a lot of climbers owe themselves to uh, and just don't know this story. So this is a... Who is Duncan McCallum? Right. That's a very interesting one. (laughs) So I I started climbing in a very similar way to you, actually. I was born and brought up in Dingwall. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You were at Dingwall? Yeah. Were you? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. (laughs) Um, And my father was a livestock auctioneer, so he ran the local auction marks in Dingwall. Right. And... There was kind of two parts of my family. One was in the auctioneering side and one was in the farming side. Yeah. So when I went to school, it was like, no, you're, that's what you're going to be. You're going to be in agriculture or something like that. Um, and I applied at the end of school to go and do forestry in, in Aberdeen. But I'm really badly dyslexic. and right. failed to get into, into uh, forestry. Um, and I kind of started jumping ahead a few years, but... I'd already really convinced myself or I was convinced that climbing was what I wanted to do. 
So I basically was thrown out of the house when I was about 16, <laughs> told to get out and get out of Dingwall and go and get a job. And my mother found me a job. Get out of Dingwall is not bad advice. Yeah. Nowadays, it's way, way better. But get out of Dingwall and um, I ended up in in Edinburgh working as a as a climbing salesperson for Graham Tizer when Graham right, Tizer okay. was still alive. So yeah. that was, yeah, I moved to Edinburgh when I was about 17. But I've been cl- I started climbing when I was 13. How did so, you get into it then? If, so, if your family weren't into oh, climbing? They thought it was the most frivolous, stupid thing you could do in the world. So quite typically, my, my dad um, did a little bit of stocking because he was involved in, in the agricultural side. We weren't a sort of middle class family, really, um, but he would get offered free stocking from estate owners because he'd sold sheep or whatever. Um, so my first experiences as a 11 year old was going hill walking with a rifle. And uh, as you do, as you do. Sounds like a standard Friday afternoon yeah, thing, well, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. And, um, and as a kid, you know, we lived in a farm. We weren't farm owners at all but yeah. we lived in a house on a farm and it was miles from anywhere it was in Fodderty in between Bill oh, yeah. and Strathpeffer and um, I would go into the gun room pull down a 410 rifle or a shotgun and I'd spend every spare moment of every day walking around on the hills in the farm shooting rabbits and then I would see animals and it was brilliant yeah. it was really really good but it was pretty isolated so when I went from Fodderty Primary School into Dingwall Academy. I kind of wasn't part of any scene. Um, and then I heard there was a gym teacher there called Steve Clouston. Right. And Steve Clouston was a really, really keen hill walker. So he had a, a school hill walking club. And a couple of people I knew or were kind of friends with at school, their parents were hill walkers and they encouraged them to go to the hill walking club. Right. So I first did started climbing Monroe's when I was 11 and I bought myself a pair of Doc Martin boots because I thought they were going to be great until I got onto the first grassy hillside and I realized it was more like snowboarding (laughs) horrendous um so I did that for quite a few years so 11 12 13 and then the school used to run an outdoor sports pursuits week at Morvish yeah in the west coast so I went in one of those and there was a guy there called Ian Rowe who wrote one of the first ever climbing guidebooks for the Northern Highlands. Right, okay. It was years and years ago. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, I think the guy was published in probably the very early 70s. Right. Um, and he took us all top so roping. you showing your the age there. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm quite old. <laughs> um, he took us all top roping on a little sea cliff on the sides of uh, uh, near Kyle. So a tiny little crag. I can't remember what it was called. And there was about... 14 kids, 14 boys and myself on this trip. And I was the only one that reached the two routes that the top ropes were on. I went, right, that's for me. That's something I'm good at, something that I can take as my own and something that really intrigued me. And that was probably 12 or 13. And from that moment on, I've never looked back. Nice. It was cool. It was really, really interesting. It was really cool that it was partly, it gave me a sense of place. It gave me access to something that nobody else was either interested in or good at. So it kind of gives you, you know, if you're struggling to find out who you are and everybody's trying to find out who they are when they're uh, young, it it was immediately something that I could take ownership of. And that was hugely valuable, especially when I wasn't 
I don't think I'm stupid, but I'm not academic. And the dyslexia really got in the way of, of yeah, my yeah. schoolwork. So at the age of 17, I think, I just finished my hires. And um, my English teacher said, I can't understand why you've got a D in your English. And he said, oh, I've just heard of this new thing called dyslexia. And you did a test. Hey, presto. It's like really good at coursework, really good at understanding concepts, rubbish at written work. Yeah. Which is a bit ironic because I spend most of my time now writing, writing paperwork <laughs> applications and filling in paperwork. But anyway, that was kind of like, okay, then I don't have a you know university at that stage wasn't something that yeah. was on the yeah. radar at all. Um so yeah, so I discovered climbing at school and it never went really any further than that. So I joined the Inverness Mountaineering Club and there was a guy called Jerry Smith involved there at the time. He sadly was killed on the Ben um, in winter. And then there was the, I think it was called the Roshire Mountaineering Club. And one of the members of the Roshire Mountaineering Club was Lord John Mackenzie. Oh, yes. And um, John was always hunting for climbers. Yes, he was. He was always hunting for <laughs> climbers. And uh, so I remember like for winters after winters after winters, he would arrive at my front door at six in the morning there was snow on the ground and we'd go climbing and he had keys for some of the estate roads. So by the age of 15, we were doing new routes in Uncoilchen and Fanex. Oh, yeah. So those climbs are actually in, oh, cold in cold climbs. So if you look at an old copy of yeah. cold climbs, the Fanex routes were all done by Clive Rowland, Mo Antoine, John McKenzie and a 15-year-old Duncan McCallum. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty <laughs> crazy. It was good. It was really, really what a brilliant apprenticeship. Yeah. And then I climbed with a guy called Ian Daly, who was a farm manager from Aberdeen. And Ian was, like, John's a mad new router. Oh, yeah. Every weekend we'd go out and do new routes. So it was a very rare occurrence that he went out and repeated never anything. You know, so I, I had a wire brush and a static rope when I was 16. We were hacking away at trees and pulling moss off crags and all sorts <laughs> of things that probably are probably not very ethical these days. But... It was fantastic. It was a really good apprenticeship, and that gave me a real hunger for developing stuff. Mm. But Ian was entirely different. He was dead old school. So we were, I remember going to the triple buttresses in Bene in November, in, and it was full snow conditions. Yeah. And we rock climbed one of the buttresses. I can't really remember which one it was. And these days, it would have been a full on winter ascent. But he wouldn't record it, he wouldn't talk about it. We went to Stack Poly quite often, and he would just go, right, there's something that's not in the guidebook. He would do that, but refused to record any of yeah. these things. So it was a real interesting balance between very old school, you know, leave no trace, don't record anything, kind yeah. of typical Scottish mountaineering club of that time. And then John, who was like, I'm going to develop everything everywhere all the time. And it was pretty interesting, that tension between the two. So uh, at my early early climbing ambitions were definitely to be in the alpine and big mountains yeah yeah so where did your ethics kind of land then Could then it, working with those two very different kind of personalities where did your yeah where did your ethics kind of land did you lean more towards the john's side of we're going to develop loads of routes and kind of open scotland up a little bit or i'm going to go outside and play and nobody's ever going to know where i am Oh, definitely in the John side. In the John side. And the, jo and the John side, I have to admit, appealed to my ego. <laughs> <laughs> and 
nice seeing your name in a book, isn't it? <laughs> it's nice seeing your name in a book, and I think you have to be really honest about your own motivation. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and I liked being good at what I did, and I liked the recognition. And I think people who say they they, they don't like that, they're probably probably lying. Yeah. There's a few. I mean, you, you, there's climbing is a very interesting sport because it seems to attract lots of quite introverted people. Mm. I don't think I'm one of those. <laughs> <laughs> you, I think you get the the polar opposites in climbing. You get the people Possibly. that are very introverted, and you get the mega extroverts. Yeah, myself yeah. and you being the latter. Possibly. Yeah, I, I think I really like my own company, and I'm more than happy to. <laughs> walk away and go to a boulder with a few mats and just put away my, my own. I'm very happy with that. And I'd walk up to crags with a static rope and clean them off and I don't need to be with anyone. Um, but I really, really value the community the side of it. Side, yeah. 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 And I think, you know, if I was to look back at the things that I probably should have invested more of my time in, when I was climbing a lot in Edinburgh and Glasgow, would be more more establishing those friendships as something that remain for life. They do remain yeah, for yeah. life, but I've been all over the shop, you know, climbing in Australia and America and all sorts of places yeah. in France and Spain. So quite often you form friendships for a small period of time and you go and do lots of stuff with folk. Now is the time when I realise that those connections are really valuable yeah. and it's worthwhile reinvesting in them for sure. Yeah, like. <laughs> I think when, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but for lots of climbers when they get into it, if it if the sport really grabs you like it did to you, like yeah. it is the sole purpose of life, oh, is going out it's and climbing. It is the thing. And yes, yeah. you, you know, you're part of the community, you're making friends, you're knowing all these people, but the aim primarily is the climbing. Yeah. Whereas now, once you get through it a bit more, it's okay, the climbing's there. The social side is the big part of that. And like me and Callum, yeah. we we do a, a talk, and part of that talk is the, our life lesson. Off, it's more about the people than the climbing. Mm-hmm. Like the things that we appreciate most about going out and climbing is the people you went out with and what yeah. it gives you and the, the community side. Yeah, yeah. And but I but I think I'm, I'm maybe I'm not maybe I'm unusual in this, maybe not unusual in this. That when I was um, climbing well. You kind of consumed climbing partners because you wanted <laughs> you wanted people to push you, yeah, and you wanted yeah. to learn from them. And then, especially when it came to belaying on really hard routes, you wanted folk who really understood what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And I suppose I'm in one of those. I'm an, of an interesting age where I was absolutely at that transition between trad and sport. You know, the first ever sport guidebook I bought was written by Pete Lifstein. It was his Verdon and yeah. South of France one. And, you know, like bolts were a new thing. But I very, very quickly when when that became a thing, kind of went, yeah, yeah, I, I that's where I want to go. Yeah. So but I had probably so I moved to Edinburgh probably in nineteen nineteen seventy nine or nineteen eighty. Um, and then immediately met people like Kenny Spence, mm-hmm. Murray Hamilton, Rab Anderson, who I climbed with a load. And one of the, and, and Kenny lots and lots and lots. And one of the things, so Kenny at the time when I started climbing with was 45 and he was called the old Jim. <laughs> so, and that's a long. <laughs> what does that make you now? Yeah. yeah, but, yeah. So I, I'm 61 now. 
So, Jesus. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. So. I don't so, want to come across like I'm coming on to you, but you're looking good for 61. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's kind of, but I think I'm still just as passionate and just as, as interested in it as I ever have yeah. been, if not more. And more for lots of different levels now. So when I started climbing with Kenny, it was really interesting. Kenny trained a lot, mm. and but he wasn't he wasn't super bold. But when he had to turn it on, oh my god, he was committed, and he taught me to try really, really hard. And I've climbed with loads of people who are technically more gifted, physically more able than me, who, when it came to turning the screw on the crux of a hard route, couldn't do it. But Kenny showed me the value of commitment yeah. at when things got difficult. And that's when you need it. When you really yeah. need to dig in and you know your hands are opening up as you go for the next hole and they're opening up for the next hole and something slips. A lot of people just give up. Yeah. I, I didn't give up. Yeah. I pushed as hard as I possibly could. And I learned that from Kenny uh, and, from, and from John McKenzie from Spider. So Spider McKenzie. Well, I think if there's any climber in Scotland who has... Is really unknown, underrated, unseen, but is one of the very, very best of his time. It was Spider. Yeah. He was phenomenal, absolutely yeah. phenomenal. Yeah, he was. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. But working with seeing those two and going climbing with them and then going climbing with Rab, who was kind of John McKenzie's ambition to do new routes on steroids, and Rab would go everywhere and do everything. Yeah. It was a magnificent apprenticeship. It was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, sounds like it. It was good, yeah. really good. I like, you know, for trad climbing especially, you need that ability to commit. Yeah. Yeah, you you, you know, you're going to get above a bit of gear and there's that one move that is a bit sketch, but you can't down climb, you need to be able to commit. So climbing yeah. with people that are able to to give you that or teach you that, like, that's so important. Yeah, so and that's a really interesting thing. So when I was climbing trad a lot, you know, we were on site in E5. Yeah. And that, in the 80s, is pr was that pretty was, reasonable standard. I mean, even now it's pretty reasonable yeah. standard. I can't think of many people now that are on site regularly yeah. anywhere near hard than that. So from, and, and that was a very interesting point. So I was climbing with, with um, Rab a lot and with Mark McGowan and with Cubby and yeah. all of that crew. And I got really, really fed up with the trad scene in Scotland at that particular time. There were so many weird shenanigans things going on. You know, like <laughs> you go to a route and you it was given a grade and being, of course, from Edinburgh. And then you go to places like Glen Nevis. God, the dark arts were there. Oh, yeah. It was extraordinary. Yeah. So you'd find yourself... Well, it's not mu changed much. You know, you'd find yourself halfway, halfway up an E4 or an E5 or even an E3. And you go, oh, my God, how can you possibly get that nut in that route on the lead? Oh no, and then you find out it was fiddled in, left the day before, it was clipped <laughs> to the side. So and and I was trying to push on those routes and yeah, I was yeah. trying to climb as hard as I possibly could. Um, but trying to then on site routes that had been top rope inspected or worse or worse or worse, kind of I got utterly fed up with that. And I remember doing an on site of a, an E five on one of the higher buttresses in in Paul Du and on the very last move like way way above some shitty RPs almost falling off going yeah no that is probably that is probably at the limit of where I feel comfortable doing these things yeah, yeah. 
And I got myself in that position because the person who'd done the first ascent had basically kind of sandbagged everybody with the grade and with the gear. And I just thought, ah, it's, this is stupid. You're not, you're not climb, you're not competing or climbing on an even playground when it's like that. You're, yeah, yeah. you're dealing with people's personalities and egos that are not. It's not. It's not. It's not playing fair. Is it's no. It's not. It's sorry. The phrase isn't playing fair. It's just not even. And yeah. I think that to me, I found really annoying. And that that absolutely landed at the first time I really went on a sport climbing trip in France, and the two coincided. And I yeah. went, yeah, that's it's cleaner. It's um, the line between doing something and not is 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 much cleaner. And you do an ascent or you don't do an ascent. Yeah. And you're not going to get led into something that's incredibly dangerous because you've been told that ah, it's only E4, but it's actually E6. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, like, a, a lot of the climbers of that generation still maintain that they're not competitive people. They don't like the competition <laughs> side of climbing. They're not for climbing being in the Olympics. It's going to ruin sport and all that. But they were the most competitive people I've ever met. It, it was they, like like credit to them. Like they put up some incredible lines and did some incredible things for the sport. But the Eagles were large. Yeah, and and I think if if you were operating in, I mean, I really like the head pointing concept. Yeah, on site head point, you the red point, whatever. Um, it's very clear what you're doing. Mm. And if you're good enough to headpoint something, everybody can see it. Everybody knows what's happened. Everybody knows that the gear's been rehearsed. Yeah. That's totally fine. Um, but those should bring Kevin here because he hates headpointing. Yeah. It's, <laughs> but, you know, some of Kev's routes in, in Glen Nevis, they're bloody hard to repeat yes. because you need to know where to fiddle that wire. Mm -hmm. So you'd find yourself in the crux of a route with three wires all joined together and taped together to fiddle it in because it was impossible to reach from the movement. So there was all sorts of stuff going on. <laughs> and you either love it for that oddity or you go, as I got a real fright on that route. I mean, yeah, yeah. Nah, that's, there's something. I, I, I love climbing, but I'm really fed up with the... The complexity of characters you need to understand before you can attempt one of their routes. Yeah, it's like this and is, is, and this it was X's route. They put up that first ascent. That's not going to be that great. Yeah. How was it done? <laughs> when was it done? What, you know, there was so much nonsense yeah, going on. Yeah. So for me, sport climbing and embracing sport climbing was a very good way to just get rid of all that nonsense. And then really concentrate on just what I was enjoying just the climbing, the, the climbing and the, per the performance side, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, been like that ever since. So <laughs> I, th I can't remember the, the dates, but I, I, 1985, I, I eventually ended up doing a, a degree in photography. Right. Um, and, and that led into all the film stuff and the great climbs and all those yeah, yeah. films. Um, but in 1984, 1985, I finished university with a degree in photography and I did a bit of a, a kind of, not a master's, but a kind of plus plus in, in film. And did a film filming Scotch salmon in the Highlands and thought, oh my God, I made 300 quid in a week in 1985. That's a lot of money. 
And I went, I did two weeks in that film and then went to the States for six months. Nice. So, nice. <laughs> so Jerry Handron, who was another Edinburgh climber, a good mate of mine, had got a job because he had dual nationality. He had got a job in New Hampshire and um, we went off to New Hampshire and um, they were right in the middle of, of developing all these amazing cliffs in, in the whole of that area of New Hampshire and Vermont and Massachusetts. Yeah. It was fantastic. Went out in the first year. We and I set myself a goal that I would do a 12A or a 12B in every place we visited. So that's probably about 7B ish. Yeah, about 7B ish. Yeah. yeah. So that was in 1984 85. Robbie Phillips can correct us. Yeah, probably. Probably yeah. he will. <laughs> um, so we, we climbed in, in um, New Hampshire, we climbed in the Gunks, we climbed in Colorado, we climbed in Arizona, Joshua Tree, Mount Woodson, and then back in LA. So ah, there's some big hit list. It was really good. There. Oh, Jeez. it was really, really good. Yeah. And to do things like we did the Naked Edge and it was like just yes. amazing. And those those are like 11C, 12A, 12B style routes. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, we did that big long trip and I met John Bacher and, and Joshua. That's a pretty interesting story. Um, and I, I managed to climb 12A or 12B in every single state that we visited and did a route that um, Pat Hammond had done in El Dorado Canyon, which was called Ponce Sauvage, which was, he'd top rope bolted it, but there were two bolts and 90 feet. So oh. it was like Ooh. 5.11 B or C, which is probably 6 plus or maybe 6 C. 6 C, yeah. 6 C, but like with death runouts. So I did the first on-site of that and I thought, oh, this is good. And then went to Joshua Tree and did a 12C, which was protected with RPs. Yeah. It was, that was probably, it was a real release from coming out of the Scottish scene, going somewhere different. Nobody knew you. You could just go and see these amazing lines and just really have a go. And Jerry is an amazing climber. So to do all those things with him was, it was a real, real treat. Yeah. So every second year until 1997 I went back to New Hampshire and climbed nice and I got in, got into all sorts of trouble there <laughs> <laughs> I was the and by that time um I'd already placed a couple of bolts in Dunkel right. so yeah that was cool. that was an interesting moment <laughs> I bet you so <laughs> it was really brilliant so what, it was brilliant what brought on the the bolts at Dunkeld. Then. What, what, what was that on then? That, that was... was on a thing that was called Rattle Your Dags. Right. Um, which started up, um, I can't remember, is it called Morbidesa? Anyway, it starts up the right-hand side of the main wall. Yeah. And there was an old aid route there that Dave Bathgate put up in the 60s. Yeah. And he was practicing, I think, to climb the north face of the Eiger. Right, yeah. And they were drilled holes with coach bolt so basically a a, a wheel nut bolt yeah. from a, a truck filed down to a point they drilled the hole and they hammered them in so you could climb the start of silk purse yeah. on these tied off coach bolts so cubby did the first ascent of this thing and i did an early ascent of it basically with pull the wire down off a, off a nut drop it over the bolt put the nut up and yeah. then that's what you climbed on there's quite a few of them on that pitch um and I thought, this is nonsense. I've been to Malham so many times and I've been to France so many times. And instead of having these cliffs festooned with all this rotting ironware, I'm going to chop them all out 
and put in two good ones, modern ones, and they were actually hand-drilled caving boats, so they were completely rubbish. <laughs> but that's um, what I did. So yeah. I, I did a route that started up the right-hand side of that buttress and came into the Marlena crack. Right. Um, and I placed a bolt in the rest of Marlena. There was another bolt about another three or four meters from there and a peg just before you finished at the Marlena belay. Yeah. And those were the first bolts in Scotland. So you started it, uh, and but you started it. <laughs> I have to, I have to caveat that <laughs> with, and I was sort of like, yeah, this is this is a real statement. This is a real statement. And then um, Graham Livingston, about two months later, started bolting on Tunnel Wall. Yeah, and that was the start. That was the start. Yeah, of it. That, so yeah. I can claim one of the very, very earliest sport routes. But then, if you look at Tunnel Wall, you think, yeah, that was a proper. That was when it really started. So. We were both like Graham was the same, like fed up with all the yeah. the politics and the nonsense surrounding that scene. Um, and you know he's a fairly interesting character, <laughs> but Graham really took it on board. But by that time, you know Dunkeld is where we were focusing on, yeah. and I thought, yeah. you know, all of these tied off pegs and shenanigans of ropes and trees, and it's like forget <laughs> it, just make it clean and obvious. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, Marlena and then subsequently Hamish Teddies and all of those things fell fell on after that. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting. So from your bold first step putting the first <laughs> bolt in Scotland in gave us gave us what us arguably ooh, could you argue Scotland's best sport crowd? No. Not these days. There's not many that could top it. Oh. For for quality of lines, maybe not quantity of lines, but quality of lines. Oh, look at the prow and goat crag. Oh my god! Oh, I know goat crag is so good. Even Moy is really good. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah Moy is an interesting. It depends one. what you're going sport climbing for, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, 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 for sure. So for me, I, it was kind of like one of those things where I felt. Well, at that point, you're already sticking your head above the parapet. Yeah, yeah. Um, from that point, did you get? The backlash from putting bolts in. Did oh. you start the bolt wars, or did it kind of come after tunnel wall got bolted? No, the tunnel wall routes never really got chopped because no. the people who were did your bolts get chopped? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah. Oh yeah. wow! I didn't think. They I got think chopped. Marlena and Hamish Teddy's must have been chopped three or four times. It was. It wasn't comfortable. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. It was. It was pretty. Anyway. I didn't realise they got chopped. Yeah, they got chopped quite a lot. And then, of course, all the development in Wien, some of them got chopped. Yes. Um, God, they need replaced. Do they? There, there's some of them that are pretty luminous orange yeah. now. Yeah. That's, well, there's a lot of talk about Highland Bolt Fund, and I think we'll try and do that at the new, the new climbing centre. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you do find yourself in, a, in an interesting position there where... And I would never say that climbing well justifies a ethical stance, but I would have said that it allows you to push the door open a wee bit. Yeah. Um, and that that and and really we were pretty lucky around Edinburgh at the time. There was a quarry near Edinburgh Airport called Lenny Quarry, which had some absolutely brilliant tributes in it. But I put a couple of boats in the route there, which um, Spider then took out. 
he head pointed the thing and did yeah. an amazing job. But that was right at that point where we were going to be in queue and buying expansion boats right. to put shelves in walls and using them. It wasn't very high tech and it probably wasn't very safe. <laughs> but um, yeah, there was a few things that were... Uh, and, but then at the same time, we were climbing a lot in Dunkeld, but then tried climbing in Canvas Barren as yeah, well. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's roots of mine in there, an E5 in there, both ends burning from oh, kind of the mid 80s. Both ends burning is high on my tech list. Right. High on the tech list. I haven't had a chance to go and play on it. Yet. Oh, it's pretty fun. Yeah. I did something to the left of that, which is this horrendously dangerous kind of V groove, which I don't know what grade it'll be these days, but yeah, I remember that was kind of like, <laughs> that felt pretty bold. But yeah, for me, it was quite clear. If you wanted to move well, um, and, and enjoy the climbing for its pure movement, then sport climbing was the way to go. And there's a whole bunch of us who travel down to Yorkshire every yeah. weekend. Yeah. And that's that's really where the kind of passion lied at that point. Yeah. So I can say that's possibly the first big gift that you gave Scotland. <laughs> first big one. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you did a lot, like lots and lots of first ascents before that, but that like stepping up, putting that bolt in, and starting bolt in Dunkeld and starting. Yeah, but the were... acceptability of having bolts. Yeah, and I, I was Scotland. I was fairly vocal about that. Yeah, I mean there was other yeah. like Murray and Cubby did all of that as well. Yeah, um, but I was kind of like, you know, if you're going to do that, you've got to kind of believe in what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, and I yeah. was fairly not vocal about it, I was fairly adamant that I could see what was happening in France and Spain. Yeah. I'd been to Yorkshire hundreds of times and you kind of looked at it going, God, why are you guys so behind the curve? Because it was really obvious at that time that people like John Dunn were using that sport climbing fitness and doing amazing things on, on the grit. Yeah. So you could see how there was a fantastic transference between hard sport climbing and really good performance on trad. Yeah. It goes hand in yeah. hand. You need yeah. all of that yeah. volume. Absolutely. And like, the, yeah, it, you, it's it's an amazing transference between hard sport climbing and trad and you need somewhere to be able to get yeah. Yeah. that hard sport climbing fitness. Yeah. You know, and there's, there, there are places for it in Scotland. The, yeah. the idea that Scotland or the UK in general just doesn't have places for sport climbing, that's dead and gone now yeah yeah when I, mean, I think it has its place for sure and i suppose you know one of the things that comes with that push was that occasionally you stepped over the line a bit mm. you know that i i slightly <laughs> enlarged a hold on on steel hat crag <gasps> and oh my god that was like something i regret oh. to this day but the room oh. so it's like oh, it was bad news it was really bad news <laughs> um and i got i got hooked into a little scene on, on Steel Hut that really was probably none of my business. <laughs> I got encouraged to go in there by someone who will remain absolutely nameless <laughs> to place bolts on it. And um, yeah, it was a fairly, <laughs> it was a, a fairly, yeah, it was an incident that I definitely regret. But I, what did come out of that was um, stolen. Yeah. yeah. Which um, was a route that I had bolted that Malcolm did. But that was that's a really really good route. Yeah. Um, and then I I worked with uh, Mark McGowan on the Tarrier at, at uh, 
in oh, yeah. in Dumbarton, yeah, which is yeah. one of the first sport, full sport routes full there. So I was absolutely involved in all that <laughs> nonsense as well. It's good. It's really interesting. You kind of see that transition. You go, yeah, it's kind of it's yeah. established now. So let's move on to your second big gift. Well, the, yeah, it depends what it is. So what would you consider it is? Well, I, I'm actually really proud of um, some of the edge and ledge films. So, oh, yes. so to fund yeah. all of this climbing stuff, yeah. um, I was working in, in the film business where I worked with David Attenborough and Trials of Life and all sorts of things, doing wildlife and documentary films all over the place. And that's how I filmed my climbing addiction. So I could go away and work for a couple of weeks and come back and spend a month climbing. Yeah. And it was brilliant. I had so much freedom. Um, but I kind of knew that I wanted to go and do something else. Yeah. So in 1990. No, 19. Yeah, it'd been 1992. I went back to North America. Yeah. And in the International Mountaineering Climbing School in New Hampshire, they just built a climbing wall in, in, uh, in a leisure center. It was an old entreprise fiberglass thing. And um, I was there to start a job as a climbing guide instructor yeah. in New Hampshire. And um, went and went into all of that, got offered a job by EMS Eastern Mountaineering Climbing School um, to be their climbing wall and sport climbing training development person. Yeah, yeah. And I was involved in doing some of the first duo style bolted routes in New Hampshire and Rumney, Rumney Crag. Right. We did one of the first sport routes there. Um, yeah, interesting. Going into a really traditional area. You thought Scotland was <laughs> traditional. My God, going to New Hampshire in the 80s, it was super, it was super hardcore trad. And they've got guns too. Yeah, they've got guns. <laughs> but we had a Ryobi petrol powered drill. So it was, it was pretty, but you could wander around in the woods in New Hampshire and, and because it's all forested, it's really mm. hard to find the crags. But you come across this, there were crags everywhere and they're still being discovered now. Yeah. They've now really got into bouldering development. So I'm in touch with a few people still. And the bouldering in, in New Hampshire in the forest is fantastic. But I did I did a few, like I did my first AT as a new route there. Yeah, um, yeah, it was pretty interesting, all of that stuff. But So I came back from New Hampshire. I started applying for this job. And then there was a massive downturn in the American economy. Yeah. It was 1998, I think, the American economy tanked. And that job opportunity stopped. So I thought, I'll do that. There's an opportunity. Nobody had built a climbing wall in Scotland at the mm. time. And I started thinking about building something, a national climbing centre in, in Scotland. No, no small ambition. No, <laughs> no. no open a wee wall. Let's build the national climbing centre. It center. didn't get any smaller either. <laughs> so I could see where things were going and what it kind of, I thought I'd like to be involved in. Yeah. So I still have a letter from 1989 writing to... Uh, Scottish Mountaineering Club and then Sports Scotland going, hey, I, I'm a climber. I want to build a really big wall. Give me some money. <laughs> and um, and that kind of knocked around for a bit. Um, and then by the mid-90s, Glen Ogle was in full bore and I was climbing a lot with Rab Anderson. Yeah. So Rab and I thought, right, we're going to do this. We're going to build a climbing wall in, 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 in Scotland and make it a good one. Um, so we started lobbying people and lobbying people and lobbying people. And to cut a long story short, um, we were introduced to an architect from Edinburgh 
who had had a close call on a, on a cliff with his sons and decided that it was a good idea to have a central Scotland climbing centre that pe- teach, would teach people climbing skills. How to be safe. Yeah. yeah. And at the same time, the National Sports Lottery was started. And he said, right, if you want to build a climbing wall. So the I think the Scottish Mountaineering Club or Sports Scotland, I can't really remember, put us together and said, right, here's the architect. These are the climbers. You guys have got a, a synergy. Have a think about what you'll do. So... Was that not Kev that put you guys in contact? It would have been, yeah, because yeah. they must have written to Mountain Because I think the guy had contacted Kev and yeah. said, I want to do this. And he went, I've got someone for you to yeah. talk to. Yeah, so that yeah. was, yeah, so he's he's culpable as well. So <laughs> um, so this kind of uneasy match between developer architect and the two climbers, myself and Rab, got involved. And um, he paid me a small amount of money to write an application to the then lottery sports fund and i went right well, how much does it cost to build a climbing wall okay it's about one and a half million quid yeah i'll do an application for a grant for a million quid and got it and it was it was unbelievable yeah. and that was an enormous amount of money like an un- ridiculous amount of money and the original plan for Ratho, which is now the eica was to build a large crinkly tin shed at the South Gyle in Edinburgh, inside the Ring Road, next to one of the new railway stations, which is now built, but accessible by public transport, by students, and it was in the city. So that was the plan. Yeah. And we designed the building and we'd found a couple of sites, thought, okay, this might work, this might not work. And then I went off snowboarding in, uh, in Chamonix for a couple of months and came back and the architect said, um, yeah, I've bought I've bought Ratha Quarry, and I went what? He said no, no, it's 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 going to be an outdoor annex to the indoor centre. We'll just we'll take people to the indoor wall, and then we'll take them to the quarry to do the teaching that we need to do. And I went that sounds like a bloody good idea. That's fine. And then as you, know, you do, you know, I just bought a quarry. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's there's backstories <laughs> to all of these stories which we don't have time to get into. Um, so yeah, so we. Uh, and then it went on and on and on. And then um, the architect said, right, this is a goer. Um, I'm going to employ you and Rab um, on a part-time basis to start with to help set this thing up. I've got the money. You've got the grant. Let's stick, make a Ratho Quarry Company and we will go for it. And I went, that's good. Um, but it needs to be accessible by this, this and this. And this is the spot we've identified and it was before all of those big developments in the South Gyle and there were plots available. And I went, yeah, 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 fine. And then I think I went away to Vietnam to make a film for The Edge or The Face, it yeah. was at the time. Came back and said, right, um, I've started excavating the quarry. We're going to build the climbing wall in the quarry. And I went, okay, that is a bit bonkers. <laughs> and he went, well, you know, that take it or leave it. And I went, okay, we'll, sure. we'll, we'll have a go at this and see what happens. And then followed, that was in 1998, then followed probably the most traumatic development period I've ever been involved in. <laughs> and it was, it, it was bonkers. It was absolutely bonkers. It was a completely crazy project that, and you know what the building's like. Yeah, like even trying to construct that kind of thing now, it's a crazy concept. Yeah, it got... <laughs> I mean, the, the, the building itself is 
It's an extraordinary achievement, but it isn't fit for purpose. And all the way through the development, I said, look to the architect, you know, how, how are we going to heat this? And he went, oh, we'll just hand everybody warm jackets as they come through the door. Yeah. And I went, that can't <laughs> work. So then we had a thermal Amazing. mask. Three belay jackets. Oh, yeah. it, was, it was nonsense. And then the cost. He said, right, how many, how many people are going to come through the door climbing? And I went, okay, let's do a wee calculation. And I thought about 68,000 a year. And remarkably, in the first year, it did 68,500 people coming oh, through the door. I was like, oh, okay. That's, that's pretty interesting. But as that went on, it got more crazy as yeah. it went on. It, the building got bigger. We started off with a pretty small furniture budget, and that mm. went well over the hundred thousands. And there was furniture imported from Italy. There were caithness flagstones put in the floor rather than poured concrete. And how many of them are broken now as well? Oh. oh. So I then ended up consulting all the way through that. Ended up working with the UIA or the IFC to bring in the first World Cup competition. So I organised all of that with. I remember the Edinburgh it. company I remember called it. I Rare Management. Yeah. yeah. So Rare Management, they now do the um, Mountain Bike World Cup in Fort William. So yeah. Rare were brilliant. So we kind of jointly launched the first ever World Cup competition in Scotland, opened the building, and then it went absolutely tits up. And that was partly linked to 9-11. Right. So... The ability to fund the project was was pretty much scuppered around that point because yeah. of because of that incident, which is a really odd pan continental global yeah. effect. But you know that if you look at it now, the the legacy is enormous. Oh, yeah. Um, but it took me years to go back into the building and not feel sick. Yeah, bet you. It was I like, bet oh, you. God, that's what I mean. Like you, that's so. You, you, you gave the gift of bolts in Scotland. <laughs> you gave the gift of Scotland's, I mean, the UK. Yeah, it's not just, it's not just Scotland. It's still the biggest ar- climbing arena in the world. Biggest climbing arena in the world. In the world, yeah. it still yeah. is. Yeah. Um, that is all happened because of you. And like I said at the start, there's uh, so many climbers that started in the past 10, 20 years that have come straight out of Rathol that don't know any of this history they don't know how that was there they yeah, partly it because it's so it was it was really difficult so and I, I, just kind of going back to your statement it wasn't just me placing the no first no, no no it no it wasn't just you know <laughs> no, you have to give no, no, i'm blaming bit, you for you know, everything there was a lot of very good <laughs> climbers including rab anderson who were heavily involved in rattle but i was part of that catalyst yeah for sure no, I'm, bl- yeah. I'm blaming all the blame on you <laughs> okay i'll take it i'll take it ne- next time we have a bolts wars conversation i'm gonna leave your email at the bottom all right okay yeah. god <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, you gave us Rathul. and and then when you look at kind of, uh, you know, one of the very first people that came into that building who really thought I thought this is the future climbing was Nat Berry. Yeah, so Nat yeah. was in there as a as a tiny tiny whiff of a thing who's yeah. now like an unbelievable. Because she only just kind of started climbing at that point. Yeah, she was right at the very eight, start. Eight yeah. when she started, and yeah, yeah, she would have been about nine. Yeah. When you guys opened, yeah. so yeah, it would have been our first year. I mean, I was fairly convinced that one of the things that we wanted to do is what I'm now trying to do in Inverness is to make sure that there's a good transition between indoors and outdoors. Yeah. So we had two mountain guides involved in the instructor team. So my ambition was definitely that we were going to run 
lots of outdoor work there yeah. as well. So I, I absolutely see the value of indoor walls and I love going to decent bouldering gyms and good climbing walls because there's a sense of place and community and it binds everybody together. Um, and it's fine if a large percentage of that community don't do anything else, but you've got to keep the door open for people and, people and, do. and point them towards those outdoor pathways. Yeah. And, you know, of course my weight is is probably more leaning towards sport climbing, but if it's not embracing trad, then you're really not doing enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you, you've nicely brought us on to the current time. We've gone through lots of history. Yeah, the, I'm sure there's lots of yeah. history that we haven't yeah, there's touched on. But... 15 years of, of living in the Alps yeah. in between God. then and now. Yeah. So, yeah, after after Ratho, I thought, I can't, I can't stay here any longer. It was so it was such a traumatic period for lots of people who were involved in the, the demise and then the, the phoenix rising. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I moved with my family to um, to the French Alps and we did a mad Grand Designs chalet build thing mm. there, which is a whole other book. <laughs> but then, yeah, I went snowboarding. And that time, nothing dramatic happened apart from me buying lots of snowboards. Um, but then... Then, you know, kind of, it's really hard to make a living in France if you're not absolutely part of a, a, the scene there. Yeah, so yeah. we ran a ski chalet for a bit. That marriage broke down. Um, my kids started moving all over the place. And um, my parents were living in, in Dingwall and they were both really pretty ill at that stage. Right. So I thought it was time to come back. And I came back to Inverness knowing I wanted to do something because the state of the indoor climbing wall in, in Inverness yeah. is was not good, is not good. Um, but that culminated with me coming back to looking after my mother in particular. And at that point, somebody had just started a lobbying Facebook group called Climb Inverness on Facebook. And I thought, I remember it. Oh my God, I've been thinking about building a, cl- a new climbing wall in Inverness for the last couple of years. This person started this thing. I better get involved. Mm. And that was a real kick. It was like, oh yeah, there's somebody. I knew that there was a demand. Mm. Um, and Inverness had just gone through a whole kind of regeneration policy with loads of new houses being built here and kind of expansion of the city and new schools. And I think, yeah, time's probably right. Um, so we started this. And I have to say that there, there was initially quite a bit of resistance from some of the institutions that were around to fund but straight away, Kev was immediately right. Okay, absolutely support you and everything that we're going to do here. We talked a lot about the facilities. I think it was the 2015 National Facilities Plan at the yeah, time. Yeah. I wanted to make sure that anything we did here was part of that national governing body strategy. Yeah. And there's lots of reasons for that. A, it gives you access to funding. But B, it means you're part of something a bit bigger. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think something in Inverness needs to have that sense of place within yeah. within the culture of climbing I mean, in Scotland. Having built already built one national centre, you weren't gonna go smaller, were you? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> However, so in between in between Ratho and and building the, the ski chalet in France, I ended up consulting on fifteen or twenty really big regional sports development projects mm. in Spain, in Bratislava in Slovenia, in Bulgaria, in, in Hungary, with with property developers who were building shopping malls who wanted to put adventure components into shopping malls. Because, you know, 
even then, people who owned these big, big buildings could see that shopping online was happening. Yeah. Their fixed real estate was losing value and they needed something to increase dwell time. So I worked all over the world on these projects, doing really high level consultancy mm -hmm. with like world-class developers and athletes, uh, architects. It was amazing. It was a really big insight, but that honed my understanding of what you needed to do to a development to make it be fit for place and fit for purpose. Yeah. And having seen something like Rathil, which is amazing, it is amazing, but it'd be far better if it was in the South Gile or on the outskirts of Glasgow. You kind of go, yeah, there's a vanity project, but then there's something that needs to be real. Yeah. And I yeah. hope with this thing in Inverness that it's the right scale for the population but it's also the right scale to allow that population to really develop and do something and grow and grow and grow and grow. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of hopefully where we are. Yeah, like what, what is your, I mean, tell us, what, what have you got? What, what is your plans here? So, yeah, we're sitting outside now, um, what you would call a B retail park. So A retail parks are big, fancy with Louis Vuitton and all the rest of it. And then you get B parks, which are a bit more out of town and they're kind of like big box retail, like bed shops or right, curries yeah, yeah. or those kind of things. Um, and and if you know anything about the way that the property industry works, they get sold on as the asset value drops to a point where no investment happens in them. And then there's a very lucky combination for us of a downturn in the economy. The start of uh, kind of the pandemic meant that big companies don't want to take on big buildings. So there's yeah, a few big yeah. buildings like this popping around in 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 Scotland, especially. Um, so we started the charity in 2017 and the charity was there to make sure that the surplus money that a climbing centre would make would go to support other parts of the community in yeah. the Highlands. And I suppose that is an age thing. You know, like, 20 years ago, I'd have been going, right, this is a full profit center. We're going to open a climbing wall and I'm going to take all the profit and bugger everyone else. But when <laughs> Buy you get... all that shiny climbing gear yeah. or new snowboards. Yeah, yeah, things. yeah. <laughs> Vans and cars and egos. But then you kind of get to a point where you think, what has climbing given me over the years? And it's given me an immensely varied, enjoyable, fun existence where I've traveled all over the world on the back of the skills that I learned climbing, even the film stuff, because I could sit in a tent in the middle of nowhere in a jungle or in the desert and yeah. survive. Um, I wouldn't have been able to do that if I hadn't been climbing in the Alps or climb, camping in the mountains or pushing myself to a limit. So you can think, oh, that's maybe, maybe other people will like that too. So the charitable side of what we're doing with the ledge is really, really, really important. Mm -hmm. And every day we dig a little bit deeper into some of the underlying social problems with increased poor mental health, lack of um, sporting access for the community. How do you deal with people who are non-attending school? How do you help them build confidence? All yeah. those kind of things are kind of outward boundy but my problem with those kind of outward bound projects is often a bit like when I started climbing and we're kind of coming full circle now, is that you show people an amazing experience and then you go, look at climbing, it's great. Look at the mountains, they're beautiful. And two or three people out of a group of 20 or 30 will go, yeah, that's really cool. But then you pull it away from them. You don't have, they yeah, don't have access any it. longer. Yeah. 
And I think that's almost crueler than not doing it at all. Yeah, showing them a thing and then taking it away yeah. is worse than not showing them the yes, thing in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the things that we're pretty committed to do here is that we'll run really long-term projects right. for a smaller group of people that make sure they have real value. Yeah. So our minimum project length is 12 weeks. Yeah. And then our longest one is about 18 months. Oh, wow. So, 18 months? So, yeah, Christ. yeah. Uh, because if you take somebody who's come from a really difficult background, they have to trust you. Yeah, yeah. They have, yeah. To, they have to learn stuff. Then they have to regulate themselves. This is not all in a specific order. And then they have to be able to turn up on time and interact with other folk. Yeah. And those are the sorts of things that you get, not by running a climbing wall, but running a business that, you know, somebody simply handing over a pair of shoes and being pleasant about that. For you and I, it's not a big step away from where you are. Yeah. But for somebody who's coming from a really difficult background where they've been abused or there's alcoholism or drugs in the family, they don't feel safe to go to school, they don't feel safe in their own home and they're out in the street. It's a monumental step to go from that state to serving somebody a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or holding the rope of somebody who's in that same situation you were 18 yeah. months ago. Trusting someone and being trusted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and whilst I know the value of that, I would never profess to have the the psychological skills or the background to be able to deliver that. So we've got a guy called Mark coming in to run the social impact program who has he's been the head teacher of a special school for years and years and years in England where he's had to deal with unbelievably complex um, kids who've got really, really tough, difficult backgrounds. And that is one of the principal things that the ledge will do, these long-term mentoring yeah, projects yeah. funded by what would be profit, but it's a circular, we're not allowed to call it profit because we're a charity. It's a surplus from running what we hope is a successful climbing centre. Yeah. And we've just started now working with the group of Highland Hospice. Oh, yeah. So we're running a programme, starting to develop a programme on how to help kids with trauma. So they lose parents through either violence or terminal illness. And that is all about making them feel as though that there's something solid to stand on. So if you lose a parent as a, at a very early age, you've got nothing to hold on to that seems regular. It's yeah. all dissolving in front of you. So the programs that will run through Crocus and Highlands Hospice will be based on, on principles of giving people a sense of community, a sense of place, a sense of worth, and a sense of achievement. It's a pretty cool thing. Eh? Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm excited thinking about it. Big thing, man. Like, those are stuff that, man, you you want to be able to to do, but it takes so much effort and time and dedication to be able to offer that kind of thing. So you guys been able to put that in here and run it as part of the business from your surplus. That's yeah. that's going to make a big difference for a lot of people. Well, we've just had a meeting with um, two of the local beat cops who were talking about the problems of county lines drug dealing. Yeah, and you'd normally think, oh, that's only in Leicester. And- <laughs> in, in, in England and if it's you, really not if you came out of Dingwall you know better yeah yeah it's uh. not good um, and there's a really big problem with kids not having a safe place to go yeah. or a place where they're not being judged a place that will give them time yeah and I halfway through this kind of development so I've now been trying this for six years to get this door open and we're three months away from opening the door Ooh. so it's pretty exciting 
But I, I discovered Memphis Rocks in Tennessee. Oh, yes. And I thought, wow, that's a really interesting project. So I wrote to the guys in Memphis Rocks, who we'll ultimately partner with. Yeah. I would like yeah. to do some kind of staff exchange with them. They do some amazing yeah, stuff over there. really, really they cool. Really do. But they're very lucky that they have a principal funder who has really deep pockets. Yeah. And they can afford to run it, not at a loss, but they can afford to run a kind of membership system which is pretty interesting mm. but their concept of providing a safe space where people are just valued for who they are and not try to force them into a, a slot i would like to be able to achieve that here how we do it is kind of in development but yeah. you got to start with an ambition haven't you yeah well it took them years to mm. figure out how that's going to work yeah. but it's so specific to the community that you've got yeah you know it'll take you guys a while to figure out how that looks here yeah, and and having Mark on board now is one of those things you think, yeah, I had all these grand ideas of making this a charitable project and I kind of understood the concept of what we wanted to do. But unless you have been working with those kids or those people or those adults directly in the coalface and know how they interact with the project over a long period of time, you can't just sort of march in there going, this is great, we're going to change all of these lives. Yeah. You have to have the experience and that's where his experience and the experience of a couple of our instructors who, you know, I mean, I'll end up being the mouthpiece for this, <laughs> but the guys in the coalface we've got on board are brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. And I think, yeah, that'll be, it'll be an interesting thing. It'll be a good, it's not an experiment, it'll be a very interesting project. Yeah. No, it's going to be cool to see how this develops in the next couple of years. Like on, on the face of it, you've got, I mean, we've just been in and had a, a little wander around and it's an amazing centre huge space the walls yeah, good, the it? walls look amazing man and you've got that that box ticked but seeing all these other outreach things and all these mm -hmm. other programs that you're wanting to run seeing them develop that's going to be really cool to see yeah that's and really and cool see. very luckily it's it's a really easy thing to explain because everybody's had some issues in their childhood yeah. you know whether it's you feel abandoned or you academically ignored by whoever it's going to be I suppose my interest is slightly informed by my experience at school through the dyslexia and not being part of something. Yeah. But you magnify that by a hundred times and you're probably just about touching where some of these kids are. And, uh, you know, ultimately, if you were to ask me what I would like to do with the concept of this, if I could open a ledge in East London or in Birmingham, or in a place in Glasgow, and go, right, principles that we develop here, we can then try in other places. That's, you know, yeah. maybe I'm too old for that now, but I would <laughs> like to see people come to this point and go, oh, this is a pretty good model. Let's see if we can do it somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. So, so someone needs to make that step so that others can follow. I need yeah, it. Whether you replicate it yourself, or yeah. whether you create something that someone else can copy. There are f some very large, very wealthy landowners in Scotland, one in particular I'm thinking about, who understands what childhood is like. And you think, right, give me another 15 million. We'll put another three of these throughout the country. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> start writing funded applications. Let's oh start, God, that's start all, buying coffees. That's all I've done for the last four and a half years is sit in my butt and write another application form and another application form. And for sure, Mountaineering Scotland were the first on board. And 
having that backup of a national governing body, you've got a bit of confidence in what you're trying to do, yeah. has been absolutely invaluable. I mean, I think it's a, it's a great shame that sports lottery funding is not at the same level it was when we were doing Rathal, but you've got to work with what you've got. Yeah. And we're yeah. not in that environment like any the, longer. The money's out there. You just need to find it. Like, it's not in the same place as it used to be. Yeah. And it's all a bit more divvied up than it used to be, but it's there. So it I got a little bit more effort to find. Yeah, I got asked <laughs> to one of these kind of um, Inverness or Highland business community dinners, and that sounds exciting. But Dear it's Lord. just all that kind of greasing the palms, and I have never been good at that. Yeah. I'd much rather make a statement and somebody go, "Oh, that's yeah, let's get involved," and then we can be real about it. Yeah. Um. I, I imagine that my future role will be much more of that kind of come and see what we're doing and, and enticing people to give money to programs yeah, and that's yeah. great but i'd much rather have the statement speak for itself yeah yeah well i mean once you've got things to show people you know yeah. this, this is yeah this is how it works yeah. this is it in action this is the results give me money i'll do it again give me money and give me enough time that i can enjoy the damn training elements that we built in the wall so i can at least try and rescue my own climbing career because it's been a very long time since i've wanted i mean you know during lockdown everybody built a home wall and i built one and it's great but honestly I've what been, you've what you've done here is built the country's most expensive home board <laughs> is that what you're telling me you just built your own home board oh it'd be nice eh? <laughs> the digital training boards I, I when i first used one I couldn't believe how motivating they were. Oh, they're so cool. They're really, so really, cool. really good. And they're kind of, and if you treat them like a campus board, mm. then they're phenomenal training tools. But the idea is, is that, that, you know, you you can modify them and you've got this, fun, like the 30 degree board that I used in the depot when we were working out what we were going to design there, I thought, oh my God, this is Nirvana. And it's not big. No. It's it doesn't really, need to be. no, no, but then, I went to TCA, you know, when I started doing the tour of the, the boulder walls to see which ones I really liked and what bits we could copy or modify yeah. or bring in. When I went to the, the new prop store, I thought, yeah, this is this is good. This is really good. Mm. It's got really nice staff, really good music. It's got a nice balance of surfaces. It felt as though anybody could come in there and learn to climb, but it also had its heart. It was run by climbers, kind of for climbers. I know yeah. that's a, an awful cliche, <laughs> but if you can capture that atmosphere and not make it elitist, then yeah. then it's something that you think, oh yeah, that's that's, that's quite cool. It's quite cool. Yeah, that's that's how you make non-climbers into climbers yeah. is by giving them a space where yeah. they feel comfortable, but yeah. still caters to them once they decide, oh, I'm in this. Yeah. yeah, and I think one of the the I mean, it's quite interesting when you look at how climbing walls work and where they really are successful and and fail is that they're incredibly successful once somebody's decided that they're going to get involved at creating community around that people because i think the days of that kind of judgmental climbing community if you're not climbing e3 then you're not worthwhile talking to or you're wearing the wrong climbing climbing shoe um i think that's completely changed yeah i really hope it's changed oh yeah and when i see the modern walls i think everybody mixes together and there's no space for the Kind of shirt off bullying that you find and you used to find in some of the walls in the yeah. 80s. Where no, now it's, now it's flipped. 
everybody bullies the person with their shirt off. Yeah, yeah, and you're certainly not taking your shirt off in this building. And there's really good, re- no, there's really good reasons for that. We're we're dealing with people who have had quite deep traumas in their lives, and we want to try and man- remove those yeah, trigger points yeah. at all possible. So I've already had a couple of conversations with a certain very good climber about putting his shirt on, and he's accepted the fact that he'll come here. And he'll have a shirt on, which is very good. Um, But then you kind of think, okay, that's done for a really practical reason. But what climbing walls are awful at is membership retention. Mm. So, for instance, you know, if you when you look at all the stats from the ABC conferences, the Association of British Climbing Walls conferences, something like three to five percent of people continue climbing after their first introduction. Yeah, and that's awful. Such a small number. What are we doing wrong? And, um, you know, of course, I'm starting a new venture and I want to try and make it not 5%, but make it 25%. Yeah. But that must be to do with how the wall is interacting and then how the community is interacting with, with new people. That'll be a big part of it. So from a kind of development point of view, that to me is one of the interesting big modern challenges yeah. that we've got yeah. here. How do you keep people interested in something that really is from my perspective, probably the ultimate sport. And the ultimate sport in terms of flexibility, strength, stamina, and community. And all of these avenues to go to, you can go and climb in the Alps or the Himalayas, or you can climb in a boulder just around the corner. It has so many facets, it's really wonderful. And the fact that that changes over a climbing career as well. I mean, I started off reading Bonington's books about and apparently going, that's what I want to do. And I got invited to go to Nepal with uh, Mal Duff really early yeah. on in my life. He invited me to go to Nepal to climb Nootsie when I was 19. And I think, that is pretty that's crazy. Old. But yeah. anyway, it didn't yeah. go because we had all sorts of money issues with it. But it's like, that's where, when I started, that's where you, it was definitely Alps, Himalayas. Mm. Rock climbing was something in the background. But then I got stormed off my first climbing trip to the Alps. My second, it was my second climbing trip when I was about 17 or 16. And went to the Verdon. And I met Cubby in the Verdon with a Norwegian climber who was doing one arm, one finger pull-ups off a tree in the Lapalude campsite. And Cubby could do one arm pull-ups. I thought, fucking hell, those guys are really strong. How do you get that strong? <laughs> And it was that was through rock climbing. It was yeah. amazing, and that was like okay, bolts in in the Verdon were the first time I went. Yeah, this is good. Yeah, and I can't remember what that, that would have been when I was. Yeah, that would have been in the late seventies. So it goes very far back. I did Murar de Fou, which I think is a seven A in EBs with socks, and there's a picture of me on the route, and I think I've got a hex. Did you have like that? No, I'd cut off jeans. Lycra was way I mean, after cut off, that. Cut off jeans isn't much better. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to grow a beard as well. So even at that age, I thought, right, beard, beard, beard. Um, you know, the Lycra was much later than that. So it went through... Late 70s, no? No, no, it was jeans, then white painter's pants. So yeah. there was lots of white painter's pants. And when we were doing new routes in Burnham Quarry, there's a picture of me in a... Colorado bandana and white painter's pants. It's brilliant. 
I wish I could get back. Please send me that photo <laughs> see for the can, caption for this. I'll see if Please. I can find it. I'll see if I can find it. <laughs> and it wasn't until I would have thought, not in the first trip to the States either, but certainly 86, 87 onwards mm. with full on Lycra. And I had some bloody outrageous ones. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Right, well. I am so psyched to see this place open. It has been a long, long time that I've been dreaming of having this wall here. I swear to God, I, I remember conversations about a new wall in Inverness when I was 15, and that was 16 years ago. Yeah. So yeah, it's, been I, it's, a long time it's been a long time coming. It's awesome to see it almost here, and it's going to be open soon. And I, I'm like super excited to see how your uh, outreach programs go. Um, yeah, that, that will be that'll be a big step forward in yeah. what Climb Walls offer in Scotland. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can see the impact that something like Urban Uprising is having. Exactly. exactly. And then, and that's a really short program. Yeah. But you then take that concept and try and build and build and build on it and go into the communities where it's really, really, really needed. Then it's a model that we want to design, test, and then replicate in other places. Yeah. I cannot wait to see the ledge open. I've been in, it looks mega so far. And I can't wait to see the impact that this is gonna have, not only for the, the community in the Highlands, but also on the Scottish climbing scene. And it's great to hear a history lesson about how it's all changed in the last 40 years from someone who's had a direct hand in making that change. Huge thank you to Duncan for giving up some of his busy day to lock me in his van to record this, and I hope to be the first on the door of the ledge. And the ledge has rope walls, so guess what I'm going to be doing? I'm going to be doing my buddy checks. <laughs>